Hi, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of SM Sports Radio, a new podcast hosted by me, Micah Farmer. And me, Samuel Goodrow. And we're going to be bringing you everything football, baseball, college hoops over, well, hopefully a very long time. So, Samuel, how are you feeling? You excited to get started? Yeah, I'm feeling really good. This is kind of something that we've been talking about doing for a really long time. Been friends since, I think, third grade. Yeah. Both of us have always really had an interest in sports and uh, hopefully making a career in them. We're both in college hoping to make careers in sports media, and so we felt like this was a pretty good way to kind of get our feet wet in the podcast world, and we're super excited to talk some ball with you guys. Yes, well, let's dive right into it with something I know is very near and dear to your heart, college basketball, and what about the weekend we just had? Oh man, what a weekend of college hoops. What a week in general. A lot of really just pivotal games over the weekend. Most notably on Saturday, I'd probably have to say, was Houston at Baylor. Houston has just kind of destroyed that narrative that Big 12 teams can't win on the road. Just three losses all season, all in conference play on the road, of course, but that 82-76 win in overtime at Baylor on Saturday was really impressive to me. They forced 19 turnovers in Baylor's home building, and that game came down to the wire as Yvonne Missy missed a free throw at the end of regulation that probably would have ended up sending Baylor home with a victory. Jacoby Walter did, for Baylor, have 23 points. You got any thoughts on that game? Well, as you say, the whole narrative of Big 12 teams can't win on the road. That conference has been so tough all year long, and I think coming into this year, Houston moving from the American to Big 12, you're like, okay, I know Houston's been a good team consistently, but can they hold up over a whole year of conference play? And they've really answered the call on that, been clearly the best road team in the Big 12 this season, and I think are definitely, if not completely secure they are very close to locking up a one seed after the year that they've had yeah and I actually think they're probably the best team in college basketball right now which I would not have said coming into this week I thought that UConn and Purdue were clearly 1A 1B but with both of those teams dropping a game and Houston continuing to roll at Iowa State and at Baylor I just I I can't argue against anything other than them being number one at this point yeah yeah, kind of a narrative I've seen on Twitter coming into the season and throughout the season is that, oh, just wait till Houston has to play a full Big 12 schedule. They've really answered that call, and now Houston fans on Twitter are kind of firing back at the rest of the Big 12, like, oh, just wait till you guys have to play a full American Athletic Conference schedule because that's a really strong conference as well this season. Yeah, both conferences have been very entertaining down in the american you've got a usf doing things that i don't think anyone expected overtaking the conference lead from fau so that's been super fun to watch fau obviously heavy favorite coming into the year but more competition at the top of that conference than we probably expected yeah i'm super excited to see that conference tournament because in all in all probability it's probably going to be a one or two bid league with memphis's fall over the past few weeks. FAU is pretty safe for an at-large spot, but then teams that are looking for that auto bid are going to be teams like USF or Memphis, obviously. Charlotte's been pretty strong. I think I'm forgetting one, but anyway, that's a really strong conference. That's going to be one of the conference tournaments I'd like to watch. And as we move on, this, this second pivotal game, I would say, has drawn more of a national storyline about the things that occurred after the game than the things that occurred in the game, which is always a shame. And, of course, it's the Duke Blue Devils involved in that game. Yes. Wake Forest on Saturday. Wake Forest able to come away with an 83-79 to win at home. They're now 13-0 and at home there in Winston-Salem. Hunter Salas, how about it? 29 points and 6 rebounds. The Gonzaga transfer has really been huge for Wake Forest. I, I really can't fathom how Gonzaga let that man walk after last season. He was an incredible player and now is playing good ball in the ACC. But unfortunately, all that's going to be talked about from that game for the rest of time is the Kyle Filipowski debacle with the court storming. So before I go on a pretty 
lengthy rant about this. I'd like to hear some of your thoughts about both the game and the post-game festivities, we'll say. Well, this game, I I didn't get to watch, and I was so disappointed when I came back and saw the score afterwards that I didn't get to watch it, but Wake Forest at home this year has been really tough, so this doesn't really surprise me that much. As you say, Sal is putting up 29, just another game where he puts up his performance that, like you said, makes you think, how in the world did this man get out of Spokane? So, Wake Forest at home, like I said, they continue to just be so difficult. And then Duke, the this Duke team is, they're really confusing to me because I feel like they're, you get some weeks where they look like they can make a deep run into the tournament, and then some weeks they're completely dysfunctional. And then all this off-court stuff with Filipowski, as he's walking off the court, it almost looks like he tries to trip a fan himself, and then he gets knocked into by accident by a fan. Then he's complaining that, oh, the fans try to deliberately run me over. Like, dude, there's I highly doubt the Wake Forest fans are intentionally trying to take you out for the rest of the season, but... I'll, I'll let you share your thoughts on that. All right, so you kind of you kind of mentioned my first point there at the end. The guy that supposedly attacked him, I, I'm clearly going to put the air quotes in attack there. This is a 5'8 frat guy that's probably drunk out of his mind. They've been drinking all day before this game, and obviously two and a half hours have gone by at the game. It's Duke, you're... You're juiced up for it as a fan. I know that's the case because I'm a Clemson student. It's always different when Duke comes into town for basketball. I will give it to Duke that Duke is often pretty much everyone's Super Bowl in basketball when they come into town. But you've got to know that if you're John Shire. And with four seconds left down four, you're not going to have a four-point play. So in my opinion, that's when you go ahead and start getting some of your players off the floor. You know Wake Forest is going to storm the court. They haven't beaten Duke at home in 20-plus years. And going back, to my, going back to my first point, the guy that attacks Filipowski is 5'8", probably 160. And Filipowski is 7'1", 260. So do we really think he's trying to pick a fight with a world-class athlete who has 100 pounds and a foot and four inches or whatever it is, a foot and five inches on him. I do not yeah, think I doubt so it. personally. <laughs> but I also think that the whole situation was just a little bit overblown. We 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 come off the we come off the court or Duke comes off the court. Filipowski is pretty clearly limping. I, I'm not sure if he was crying or if that was the emotions of the game or just the emotions of him after getting trampled per se. But First, in the press conference, John Shire said that it was his ankle, and then about 15 minutes later when Filipowski had his media availability, he said it was his knee, that they banged knees, and then I saw videos on Twitter after the game, and Filipowski was walking with no limp, miraculously. Yeah. He's all of a sudden fine, but somehow we need to ban court stormings because a 5'8 Chad ran into Kyle Filipowski. I'm just, I'm just so tired of that. Duke... I hate Duke as a Clemson fan. A lot of people hate Duke just as basketball fans in general. General, I will give them their props. That is because they're a storied blue blood program. But I've I've just had enough of the softness from Kyle Filipowski. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I feel like Duke almost feels like an NBA team with too much drama that I'm just sick of hearing about every week. And that's one of my favorite things about college basketball is you have less of that meaningless drama that you get in the NBA, and so I'm I'm about done with it from Duke all the time. Yeah, for sure. Now, a few other pretty notable games throughout this week and weekend. UConn lost early last week to Creighton 85-66 to in a game that Creighton just could not miss from beyond the arc. 14 three-pointers made and 50% from three, 14 of 28. And we kind of were alluding to in show prep that it's kind of crazy that UConn has not beat a ranked team on the road since 2014. How crazy is that? Yeah, especially when you look at last year. That's This is a team that won the national title last season, and they still have not beaten a ranked team on the road. I know in college basketball, the A people isn't necessarily everything, but that doesn't mean good teams aren't ranked. So... 
I, I I was shocked, honestly, when I saw that statistic, and I don't know if they'll be able to get one the rest of this year, if that'll continue, but I I still think come tournament time, I'm going to have trust in UConn despite that. I think that, as we've said, playing on the road is always difficult in college basketball, especially this year. I feel like playing on the road is even more difficult than it usually is, and then it's not like Creighton's a bad team, so obviously great win for Creighton, and... Maybe that'll boost them a couple bracket lines up come March. Yeah, it certainly should. UConn, in fairness, did bounce back on Saturday and thump Villanova 78-54 on their home court. Cam Spencer with 25 points. He's been one of the most dominant bigs in college basketball when healthy, and it was honestly amazing to me that UConn was able to win as much as they did without him over that three- to four-week stretch where he was out with injury. But, yeah, like you said, I'm going to have a really hard time not just go ahead and going ahead and chalking uh, UConn into my Final Four. I just don't really like anybody else's matchup with them unless we get to teams like Houston or Purdue, if anything. But yeah, UConn is going to be a tough out in the tournament. I think part of that stat is due to the fact that a lot of their games against ranked teams are at neutral sites, which is something we see a lot in college basketball. These high-level programs don't really want to go on the road that much, and so the only times that they really do is in conference play, and so that's that's kind of what got UConn into this debacle with this crazy statistic. Yeah, and if you think about it, the, the slight wall that UConn had in part of the 2010s, that's right when Villanova is amazing, and then you didn't necessarily have a ton of Big East teams ranked all the time. You just had a dominant Villanova maybe a good Marquette sometimes, or I think Seton Hall suck in the rankings one year, but so when you look at it that way in the Big East, if you're not playing ranked teams outside your conference, it's honestly no shock that that stat is what it is. Yeah, and speaking of roller coaster weeks in college basketball, how about the week that Washington State had? So they completed the <laughs> sweep of Arizona, I believe on Thursday night, 77-74, in a game that was just back and forth the entire game and that Arizona you could tell they felt the pressure and Jalen Wells for Washington State really took advantage of that he had 27 points and made six threes as impressive as that game was for Washington State what did they do they turned around two days later and lost outright to a pretty weak Arizona State team on the road 73 to 61 I was actually talking to some of my friends on Saturday who were who were like oh Washington State minus five and a half today is a hammer. They already beat Arizona two days ago, and I was like, you got to be careful with that because these players are still coming off the emotions two nights ago of a win over a top five, type top six team. Not not entirely sure where Arizona is in the rankings, but kind of that hangover effect, I think, is part of the reason that they dropped that game to Arizona State. Yeah, it's... It's really weird with Wazoo this week. If you would have told them, I think, coming in, okay, you're going to split one and one with the Arizona teams, they'd be like, okay, that's to be expected. But then you you beat Arizona and lose to Arizona State is not usually the way that that goes. It almost felt like Pac-12 football a little bit with the upset win and then the random unexpected loss for no reason. But obviously credit to Arizona State, played a good game, got that win at home, and protecting home court this season I think has been really vital I think if you're a team all season that's been able to consistently protect home court you're gonna have a shot at the NCAA tournament you might not make it for sure but you're gonna be in that conversation so the wazoo the great win over Arizona and Arizona that's kind of in their kryptonite this season with the the season sweep so Hopefully for Arizona, they won't see them later down the line. Imagine if they met in the Pac-12 tournament. That would be an entertaining game, but I guess we'll have to see what happens with that. Yeah, and I've watched a lot of Arizona basketball this season, and honestly, they're just not a team that I trust in March. They're going to be either a one or a two seed, and I just they lost last year in the round of 64 to Princeton. I just do not see arizona going far if they do it's going to be off the back of unc transfer caleb love when he's hot oh yeah for sure pretty much unstoppable but when he's cold they are very very stoppable yeah and yeah like you said college basketball teams at home have pretty much rolled that's been a trend this season especially but even over the past few seasons pretty hard to go into a 
conference road game and come out with a win. And speaking of that, BYU couldn't do that this Saturday at Kansas State. Kansas State came away with an 84-74 to victory. Arthur Kaluma had 28 points for Kansas State, their forward. Yeah. And BYU shot just 6 of 31 from 3, which is 19.4%. So like I was watching t- Auburn. And when, Yeah, when you're a team full of shooters, which BYU is, shooting 19.4% from 3 is not going to get the job done, especially on the road there in the octagon of doom. And that's the, that's the second in a row big home win for Kansas State. They're not quite on the right side of the bubble, but those home wins against Kansas and BYU certainly help. We're not going to harp too much on that game because Kansas State's probably not going to find themselves in the NCAA tournament, but I did think that was a notable result. Yes, for sure. Then, moving over to SEC, Alabama at Kentucky, an absolutely wild shootout game with Kentucky winning 117-95 to in Rupp Arena. Yeah, so the, the point total in that game was 173.5 before the game, so you could bet on the over or under, and that's one of the highest totals I've ever seen, and it still soared over. Let's yeah. see, that's 202, no, 200, am I bad at math? 212 total points, excuse me. And we just saw the youngins for Kentucky continue to shine. Justin Edwards with 28, Rob Dillingham with 16, and then the token old head for the Kentucky Wildcats, Antonio Reeves with 24. And I'm going to come on here in the first episode of the SM Sports Podcast and tell you guys that Kentucky is actually my Final Four sleeper. There's no team in college basketball more talented than the Kentucky Wildcats. The only thing that's going to get in their way is the pressure on John Calipari with a lot of outside pressure, a lot of outside voices saying that he might be on the hot seat if they don't make a big run in this tournament. But I do think that if this team guards to the level that they're capable, like we saw at Auburn, it's really hard to win in the jungle, and they did just that, mostly based off of their defense. But I do think that Kentucky could be a team that we see in the Final Four in just a few weeks. Well, if you get the Kentucky offense from this Alabama game and the Kentucky defense from the Auburn game, is that not a top-five team in the country when you look at it in March? Oh, it, so it certainly is. I, I completely agree with you. I'm also going to have them going pretty far in my bracket. And this this offense for Kentucky is just fun to watch. I'm not used to enjoying Kentucky basketball, but with the start of the season they had to see them really pick it up and gel and get going as the season moved on, it, it's been entertaining. Yeah, I know for both of us, we really enjoy watching Rob Dillingham. He's just a really exciting player. I actually watched Kentucky's game against LSU on Wednesday night as well. And while Kentucky did drop that one in Baton Rouge, Rob Dillingham made a really big shot to put up, put Kentucky up by one there with just eight seconds left. And then unfortunately for the Wildcats, LSU winning on a tip-in. But I've just been so impressed by the freshman Rob Dillingham and just his shot-making ability and big-time moments. Yeah, he's going to make himself a lottery pick for sure. Definitely. And moving on to our last few notable games of the weekend, Colorado State fell at UNLV over in the Mountain West on Saturday. UNLV won that one 66-60 to Don Thomas Jr. with 23 points and six rebounds there in Vegas. Colorado State shooting just 25% from three, and the most notable thing I think that any casual college basketball fans can take away from this game is that UNLV is kind of getting hot at the right time. And an interesting thing is that the conference tournament for the Mountain West is actually played on UNLV's home floor. So I think if they get hot, they could certainly end the conference championship hopes for some of those pretty good Mountain West teams coming in in a couple weeks. Be careful saying pretty good Mountain West teams. You're going to summon John Rothstein here in a minute. <laughs> oh, we'll get into some Mountain West versus ACC debates here shortly, but I have to give at least a little bit of credit. Then moving on back into the ACC, North Carolina able to defeat Virginia at Virginia in Charlottesville, 54-44, namely off the back of Cormac Ryan, 18 points, six three-pointers made. He's kind of been an X factor for North Carolina this season. They've gotten a lot of consistent production from guys like R.J. Davis, 
who is the favorite to win ACC Player of the Year. Harrison Ingram's been dominant inside, getting a lot of rebounds, and he's also shot the ball pretty well. Armando Baycott, obviously, very good player, kind of fills up that painted area. But Cormac Ryan, when he's on, this North Carolina team just kind of gets elevated to a new level, and I think he's going to be the kind of hinge point that determines whether UNC can get back to that Final Four. Yeah, for sure. And as for Virginia, this year, Virginia, you still see those low-scoring games, but I feel like more and more this season compared to maybe the Virginia we're used to is they're not winning these low-scoring games anymore, like this game versus UNC dropping it by 10. And Cormac Ryan is just accounting for a third of UNC's points, which is very impressive from him. But UVA, I think, is a team you can never really trust tournament time because of how they're built and how they play. They're very prone to early upsets. And then I don't see them making it very far at all this year because it feels like even with their slow play style, teams have adjusted to it, and UVA is just not as successful in this scheme as they used to be. Yeah, they're definitely a very well-coached team. Got a lot of respect for Tony Bennett, but I just don't think he has enough shot makers to really make a run in March, it's not really debatable that they have a really, really good defense, but I just don't think oh, for they sure. have enough offense to make it very far in March. And finally, back in the SEC, South Carolina at Ole Miss. Ole Miss with a pretty good squad, at least offensively. Chris Beard's doing a pretty good job there in Oxford. South Carolina, though, able to bounce back and win 72-59 to on the road, B.J. Mack. They're forward inside with 17 points, and the Gamecocks hot from three, eight for 17. And a whole miss shot just 33% from the field in general. And I think I see some notes by Micah Farmer on on this section. Yes, yeah, so as we look at our SM Radio notes document over here, I have my in-depth analysis that 33% from the field is, according to experts, suboptimal. So Ole Miss will want to figure that out if they want to get back going in conference play, which I think they will. This is an Ole Miss team that's been built on their offense pretty much all season long, has a lot of good scores. And South Carolina, I still don't quite know what to make of this team. It's definitely not a team I trust in March with how they got exposed versus Auburn, then the home loss to LSU. But then they come out some days, and like you said, they just catch fire. So a very volatile team. I'll be curious to see what they can do in the SEC tournament, but I don't know how far I'm going to send them in my bracket come tournament time. Yeah, LeBron Paris has done a really good job in just his second year with the program, but not a lot of shot-making ability outside of those wide-open three-pointers, in my opinion. South Carolina could make a run if they got hot from beyond the arc. They play pretty good defense, but not a team that I'm just going to go ahead and pencil into the second weekend. I think they might be on upset alert there in the round of 32, but that'll be an interesting team to watch as we get closer down the stretch, both both in the SEC tournament and in the NCAA tournament. We'd be remiss to talk about college basketball with a Clemson student and an Auburn student if we didn't get into a little bit of an uh into a little bit of a segment kind of crapping on the Mountain West which I'm going to do for a little bit. <laughs> the Mountain West right now is projected to have 6 bids in the NCAA tournament by Joe Lenardi and several other experts. Those those 6 bids are project, projected to be Utah State, Boise State, Nevada, San Diego State, University of New Mexico, and Colorado State. While the, the ACC, which is one of, if not the best, conference in college basketball history, not recently, I won't, I'm not trying to argue that they're, in recent years, the best at all. The ACC right now is only projected five bids, North Carolina, Duke, Clemson, Virginia, and Wake Forest, with Wake Forest only being projected to be in because of their win against Duke on Saturday. And... We've actually seen these two conferences, ironically, face off a little bit this season. Clemson yeah. beat Boise State by 17 at home. Florida State went on the road and beat UNLV by 8. Florida State is by no means a good team in the ACC, kind of towards the bottom, and UNLV is kind of in the middle of the pack there in the Mountain West. Virginia Tech even beat Boise State by 7 points. 
Colorado State did pick on a weaker Boston College team by 12, and Nevada beat Georgia Tech, a bottom feeder in the ACC, by 8 points. And a cool exercise that I decided that I was going to do is match each of these teams up in each conference by their net rating. So UNC is the number one in the net in the ACC, and they would be matched up with San Diego State. I'm just going to go through these matchups, Micah, and you tell me who you would lean on a neutral court to pick in these games. North Carolina, San Diego State is the first one. Uh, give me UNC at that. The second one would be Duke versus University of New Mexico. Definitely Duke in that. All right, so for those keeping track at home, it's 2-0 ACC right now. Third, Clemson, Colorado State. Uh, give me Clemson as well. Yeah, that one's a little bit closer than the first two, I think, but I, I think we can uh, side with Clemson there. Fourth is UVA against Utah State. I don't trust UVA at all, and so just for that reason, I'm going to take Utah State. I'm, fi- I'm fine with giving that one to Utah State, so it's 3-1 to one right now. Then we go to Wake Forest against Nevada. I I like this Wake Forest team. I've enjoyed watching them a lot of this season, and I think they have a really good potential, so give me Wake Forest. Yeah, certainly a lot of offensive firepower there. Then Pittsburgh against Boise State. I'm probably going to take Boise State in that. Yeah, I'm probably taking Boise State as well. Pittsburgh can get hot off the hand of Blake Henson and a couple other players on that team that can really shoot the ball, but probably got to give that one to Boise State. They're having a pretty good year. Then Virginia Tech, UNLV. Virginia Tech has been playing pretty well recently, and so because that give me Virginia Tech. All right, so it's 5-2. to two in favor of the ACC right now. We got four more. Miami, Wyoming. Miami. Six to two. NC State, Fresno State. NC State. Seven to two. Syracuse, San Jose State. Syracuse for sure. Eight to two. And then finally, Boston College versus Air Force. Boston College. Yeah, so there there you have it. Uh, an SEC student over here picks ACC teams that are similarly matched up by net ranking nine times out of 11. I think that just goes to show you that the Mountain West does deserve a lot of respect, but I think any narrative that they're better and stronger top to bottom than the ACC, just in my mind, is silly, but we just we won't harp on that too much any longer, but it's going to be interesting to see come Selection Sunday with, with both of these teams uh, conferences fighting for bids, just how many each of them get. Should yes, we get for into sure. Our, should we get in get into our players of the weekend and teams of the weekend? Yes, we shall. I will let you lead it off. Yeah, so I'm going to go with Hunter Salas as the player of the weekend, 29 points and six rebounds in that victory over Duke, like we mentioned. Do you have a player of the weekend off the top of your head? It's cool if not. Yes, uh, I'm going to go with Tristan Newton with his 27 points in Creighton's win over UConn. I think he was instrumental instrumental in that game and a massive win for Creighton. Then I'm actually going to have two teams of the weekend. I'm going to give Houston one of those. They won at Iowa State earlier this week and then this weekend at Baylor. Nobody's playing better ball than the Houston Cougars right now. And then I also am going to give a shout to St. John's. Yesterday they defeated Baylor at home. That's going to be two days ago if you're watching this on Tuesday. But St. John's, really after Rick Pitino kind of called the whole team out in a public press conference, they really responded uh, in front of their home fans actually at Madison Square Garden yesterday and kind of dominated that Creighton team start to finish. Those are my teams of the weekend. For my team of the weekend, I'm going to go with Wake Forest. I the win over Duke is really big. And then I was going to give it to Washington State until they fell flat versus Arizona State. So uh, we're just going to rock with Wake Forest as my team of the weekend from Sweet. All right. And as we wrap up kind of our college basketball talk, let's just look at these conference races real quick. I'll let you start off with the SEC. Yes. Yeah, so SEC, I think, starts and ends with Tennessee this year. Dalton Quebec has them 
firing and so much SEC drama you've seen with, oh, Alabama, their record versus top 25 isn't great. Kentucky can get hot, but are they built to last? Auburn has been super weak on the road, but absolutely dominant at home for most of the season. And through all that, Tennessee just keeps chugging right along consistently. So I think Tennessee's going to end up with a regular season title, and I think they're going to end up winning the conference tournament as well. I think if Auburn can get their shooting going, they definitely stand a chance. It's just the the three-point shooting for Auburn is so bad that when they get into these high-scoring games, a lot of times if it's close and high-scoring, they just aren't built to keep up, which is it's frustrating as an Auburn student to watch. It just happened consistently, but we finally saw some life from Abe Holloway putting up 15 and making a couple threes in the Georgia game, so hopefully that'll flick the switch for him and get him going because if he's on, this Auburn team shoots totally differently. Yeah, and if Auburn can get November, Aiden Holloway in March, Auburn's going to be a really tough out both in the SEC tournament and in the NCAA tournament. Aiden Holloway just had those big games in November. I'm thinking most notably that neutral site game against Baylor. He yeah. went off in that one. And I thought he had a big season ahead of him. He's kind of struggled between then and now, but he's definitely a linchpin for Auburn's long-term success, in my opinion. For sure. And then I'll toss it over to you for your conference, the ACC. How about that race? Yeah, so UNC has pretty much separated themselves there in first place at 13-3. and They own the head-to-head win against Duke, of course, in Chapel Hill. They'll have one more matchup against Duke. Duke in second place at 12-4 and and UVA in third at 11-6. and Teams like Clemson and Pitt and Wake Forest are kind of grouped in that second category in terms of the conference race. Clemson, I feel like, is a lot better than their conference record would stand to say. They have a couple of tough losses by one point, actually, against NC State and obviously the game at Duke, also lost at home to Georgia Tech. So those are a couple losses that are preventing Clemson from really contending for that regular season title. But then even teams like Wake Forest have really come on strong late, and so I think the ACC tournament is going to be must-see TV as we have a lot of teams playing their best ball down the stretch. For sure. I'm super excited to watch that race as well. Then for the Big Ten, it looks to be Purdue as it has since the start of the season. Illinois sits at about three games back right now, but I just don't see Purdue dropping that many more games the rest of the season. They're they're built to win in the regular season for sure, and so I think they take home the Big Ten title both in the regular season and the tournament this year. Yeah, I think you can go ahead and pencil Purdue in as Big Ten regular season champions. It feels like the Big Ten is a little bit down this season. Just looking at the standings, the fact that Illinois and Northwestern are second and third, I just don't feel like those are as strong of teams as the Big Ten has had in the past, but Purdue for sure is a contender both to win that conference and maybe even to win the national title, at least get back to their first Final Four in decades, which is definitely their main objective, Final Four or bust over there in Boilerville. Um, For sure. The Big Big 12, as always, is a bloodbath. Houston kind of separating themselves with their big week. They're at 11-3 in the conference, those two Big road wins at Iowa State and at Baylor. Iowa State, though, is playing some good ball, and they're in second place, 10-4 in the Big 12. And then Kansas, after dropping a few tough ones on the road, sitting there at 9-5. But they are unstoppable at Allen Fieldhouse. And so any any of these teams that come into Allen Fieldhouse or in the Big 12 are probably going to get beat. That's just one of the most electric atmospheres in college basketball. Finally, we have the Big East and the Mountain West. Which one of those would you want to get into? Uh, we'll get into the Big East first, and it is UConn, probably. It's been UConn all year. Marquette is three games behind. The issue for Marquette is I don't know that UConn drops three more games in conference play the rest of the season with how good they've been playing. There is the on-the-road stat we talked about, but now that they've had their game versus Creighton on the road, and then they throttled Marquette. How many more of these games are they going to have? And so I think UConn has the Big East pretty much wrapped up at this point. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that. Finally, the Mountain West is 
kind of crowded up there at the top. Utah State and Boise State tied for first at 10 and four. San Diego State just a half game behind at 10 and five, and then a couple teams tied for third. Nevada and UNLV at nine and five. So that's going to be a race to watch at least in the regular season, and then a pretty good conference tournament over there in Las Vegas. Going to be exciting to watch as these teams claw for the automatic bid, but a few of these teams also going to get some at-large wins. Anything else on college basketball before we move on, Micah? Uh, I think that is it for college basketball for this week, and we'll hope for another good week of some exciting games just like we just had. But moving over into football now, I know it's the off season, but that means it's NFL draft season, which is the best time of the year in my and, opinion. And if you're listening, if you're one of my friends or family and listening to this, you're not going to get any better NFL draft coverage from a college student than from this man right here. Micah has been working on his craft in draft evaluations and just looking at film and doing mock drafts. And he's really become quite good in this category. So this is going to be some must-see TV over here with Micah Shit. Farmer's NFL draft coverage. I, I appreciate that. This week, we're going to be getting into our favorite prospect in this year's draft. This is not who we think the best player is in the draft. This is just a guy that we really like, we think is going to be great for whoever drafts him. And so I'll let you lead off for the guy I know is pretty near and dear to your heart as a Clemson student. Yeah, so you kind of mentioned it there. Nate Wiggins, cornerback out of Clemson, has got to be my favorite prospect. It was just so exciting to watch him in his career at Clemson, just watch his growth from getting torched over and over again just last year against Wake Forest to becoming pretty much Clemson's lockdown corner that no offenses really want to test and I, I pretty much could leave it at the fact that he's a Clemson player as my favorite but I actually did a little bit of research and wrote up some reasons why he's my favorite NFL prospect so Nate Wiggins is an ideal potential match cornerback because he played in a ton he played a ton of off coverage in Clemson's scheme, but he can also clamp well at the route stem. Don't ask me how I came up with this NFL vocabulary that <laughs> sure. that Micah Farmer is so familiar with, but I was able to do it. Uh, Nate Wiggins also has smooth transitions through his routes through the routes that he covers that also allow him to be a very good press defender. He has the recovery speed to make up for any delays upfield, which we saw in the North Carolina game as he chased yeah. down North Carolina's running back and punched out the ball at the goal line. It was looking line. like DK Metcalf out there versus Buda Baker a couple years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Nate Wiggins is just a game changer and never gives up on a play. And Yeah, I'll just kind of leave it at that with Nate Wiggins. Won't really get into his minuses as a prospect. Yes, that'll be for later in the year as we move close to the draft. My favorite prospect in this year's draft is going to make a lot of people upset, and that is because it is Michigan quarterback J.J. McCarthy. McCarthy has an absolute rocket for an arm. I don't think a lot of people realize just how strong McCarthy's arm is. It's not Caleb Williams, it's not Drake May, it's not Joe Milton, but it's right there under those. And his athleticism is out of this world. In just a straight-line race, I think he would be or be with every single quarterback in this year's draft, including Jaden Daniels. He's an elite athlete. I know he didn't throw the ball much at Michigan. It's because he wasn't asked to. When you can run it for five yards of play, you're going to do that a lot of the time, especially in the Jim Harbaugh offense with that power run scheme he loved to use and his two NFL running backs he had with Blake Corum and Donovan Edwards. But when McCarthy was called on for those plays, he would make those throws. He has excellent touch on the ball. He can drive the ball well. He's really good at taking the check down. I know people are going to say, oh, it's because all he threw were check downs. But when nothing else is open down the field, you want your quarterback to take the check down. That's, if the quarterback doesn't do that, that's how you end up with Justin Fields on the Bears taking 15-yard sacks every play because he holds onto the ball for three hours. So I think that's another good trait for McCarthy. His mental processing appears to be really good watching him. He's able to move through his reads. He doesn't have a ton of reads on plays, admittedly, a lot of the time because of the way the Michigan offense is constructed. But in his short reads that he does have, he's good at quickly working from his first to his second, then he'll go down to that check down. So good mental processing, an elite arm, elite athleticism. And then he's also super young. When you look at the other quarterbacks in this year's class, he's younger than pretty much all of them. 
And so teams are going to love those traits, that age, that developability that McCarthy has. So I think he's going to find his way into the top 15 for sure, maybe even the top 10 if a team trades up. And if you're a fan of a team who drafts J.J. McCarthy, I would not be devastated. I would be absolutely over the moon. Granted, quarterback has a super low hit rate in the draft. Not all of them are going to work out, but I think McCarthy is going to work out. I think he's going to be a very good player for a very long time. Yeah, and he's kind of a project like guys like Josh Allen that we've seen, other traits-heavy guys. How how long do you think it'll take for him to be a true impact player in the NFL? Do you think he's a guy that just steps in and right away makes a difference, or do you think it'll take a couple of years? I definitely think he steps in right away, but I think it's probably going to be his second, maybe even his third year before you see his potential. Think. I know we keep talking about Josh Allen. They're not overly similar players. They just are both highly developable quarterbacks with some raw talent. But I think you might see a similar career path where McCarthy starts immediately and isn't necessarily amazing, but through his first two or three years in the league really gets it going and really develops into a top 15 or maybe even top 10 quarterback in the NFL. And let's face it, this is a guy that's played a lot of big-time football, undefeated against Ohio State in his career, and then obviously led Michigan to the national championship this past season. And the skeptics that would say that Michigan just ran the ball every play, I'd I'd encourage them to go turn on the tape of some of McCarthy's big-time throws in big-time moments. Watch the Ohio State game. If you want to see what J.J. McCarthy can do as a passer, watch the Ohio State game. He made some great throws in that game. I know... Before that game, you were on the J.J. McCarthy hate bandwagon, and I was like, "I trust me, you got to watch this guy, and you sent me a text about halfway through the Ohio State game and said, I apologize, this guy's legit. So if you don't trust J.J. McCarthy, go watch the Ohio State game. Yeah, so I actually had to hit you with the, I apologize, I was unfamiliar with your game, and address that to <laughs> J.J. McCarthy, as I was admittedly a doubter of his, especially at the next level, but after watching some of his tape and then also hearing this groundbreaking analysis from my co-host here, Micah. I'm, I'm, I'm slowly and surely getting on the J.J. McCarthy train. Wouldn't, wouldn't love him to go to my Falcons, but I also wouldn't hate it based on what Give it I've a year, doing. you'll love him. Give it a year, you would love it if he goes to the Falcons. Yeah, I guess only time will tell. That'll be really interesting <laughs> to see. Yep. Then our other big football-related news is the college football video game is back. EA College Football 25 is set to release this summer, finally. I'm super excited. I know you are as well. And I know we'll probably be doing our Auburn and Clemson dynasties, but I have to ask, what's a absolutely random team that you can't wait to make an absolute powerhouse on the game? Yes, I'm actually going to go with Georgia State. They're situated there in Atlanta. I'm a big Atlanta sports guy. They actually play in the old Turner Field, which is the old home of the Braves. And so I just thought it would be fun. Georgia Tech's not going to become a college football powerhouse anytime soon, in my opinion, although I do like what Brent Key is doing over there at Georgia Tech. So I think that it's time to bring some high-level college football to the state of Georgia to rival the University of Georgia and also to the Atlanta area. And so Georgia State, I felt like, was a program right to do that there in the heart of the city. Yes, definitely should be fun to rebuild them. For me, it's got to be the FIU Panthers. Just looking at college football in Florida right now, I know Florida State is really good right now, but Florida, Miami are not what they once were. UCF is kind of decent, but a new Florida college football powerhouse is coming in Florida International. They've been consistently terrible, but under the leadership of Coach Micah Farmer, that is going to change. We'll be recruiting the heck out of the state of Florida. My two-star quarterback is going to go into Doak Campbell Stadium and hear the FSU war chant played about 80 times. He's going to break some ribs. But in a couple seasons, FIU will be the best team the state of Florida has ever seen. Yes, that is going to be exciting to see, and we cannot wait for EA College Football 25 to come out. Seen a lot of teasers about it and voices in the game and players opting into the game so just a lot of excitement that's a game that we kind of played growing up 
NCAA 13 and 14. It's just a travesty that we've had to wait 11 years to get the next yeah. installment in the game. But it's finally here, and I know we're both super excited about that. Speaking of things we're excited for, spring training has started. Baseball is back, and I am super excited for this year as a Cincinnati Reds fan. I have hope for the first time since 2012, so let I am so excited for this year to get going. I hope that Ellie De La Cruz breaking Cotter Green's window is not an omen for the season <laughs> to come, but I, I have a good feeling about this Reds team. Yeah, and the Reds are going to be a really fun team to watch just as some of their young stars develop. Guys like Matt McLean, Ellie De La Cruz, like you mentioned. It's going to be nice to see if the Reds can get a full season healthy out of Hunter Green, like you mentioned. I'm really excited to watch the Cincinnati Reds this season, and hopefully they can contend in the Central. Yes, Central's wide open this year. I think the only team that doesn't stand a chance is the Pirates. If you tell me any of those other four teams win, especially with Cody Bellinger re-signing with the Cubs, I think all four of those other teams have a shot to win that division for sure. Do you want, However, to, give us, do you want to give us a little rant about Ellie De La Cruz versus O'Neill Cruz? I think that would be okay, good for the so, program. Pirates fans, listen. O'Neill <laughs> Cruz is not better than Ellie De La Cruz. Just because he was in the MLB first doesn't mean he's better. Ellie is faster. Ellie has more power. You're not going to want to hear either of those things, but it's true. Ellie does not hit for average, I'll give you that. He's played in the league for, what, four months? Give him some time. O'Neill Cruz is out last year because of an injury. I still think O'Neill Cruz is a good player. Don't get me wrong. I just think Ellie De La Cruz is a better player. They both offer you elite defense. I think they're neck and neck right there. I personally would take Ellie's reaction ability a bit more. They both have absolute rocket arms, and they play their positions really well. Two giant shortstops, both soaring over six feet, and both with immense power. I just think Ellie pips O'Neill Cruz in a lot of those spots. And call me a biased Reds fan. Maybe I am, but I don't care. I think he's better, and you're not going to be able to change my mind on it. Yeah, we were kind of talking about this over the weekend, how delusional Pirates fans often think that O'Neill Cruz is better. And I suggested the fact that maybe this is just their Super Bowl argument since uh, the Pirates haven't won anything in a long time and don't look destined to win anything for a while. So maybe their Super Bowl is the argument that O'Neill Cruz even can hold the jockstrap of Ellie Dale Cruz. <laughs> Listen, their, their Super Bowl might be these re-signings they're doing because they've locked up Mitch Keller in a long deal. They've locked up Ryan Reynolds. So the, they're, following, they're following the Alex Anthopoulos pattern. Yes. I don't know if you saw the expose article that the Athletic did recently where they basically just trashed the Pirates completely. Like, they never re-signed anybody. This is an unserious organization. And then the day after that was released was when the Pirates gave out the long contract to Mitch Keller, which I found pretty funny. But so... I know you're a Braves fan for the NL East this year. I personally am taking the Braves. I'm sure you are as well. But why do you think they're built to win that division yet again? Yeah, so like you said, won it six times in a row, looking to make it seven. The addition of Chris Sale, I think, is an offseason move that's not been quiet in Atlanta per se, but kind of been quiet nationally. I think a lot of people have written off Chris Sale. And by no means am I saying that he's going to be a Cy Young caliber guy, but the fact is the Braves don't need him to be a, a, a Cy Young caliber guy. They just need him to be a consistent third or fourth starter that can stay healthy about 75% of the season and most notably pitch well in the playoffs, which he's done a lot throughout his career. The Braves have not been able to get past the Philadelphia Phillies the past two seasons, largely I'd say do their starting pitching, but... A lot can be said about the lineup having its struggles in the postseason. I don't think that's going to happen for the third season in a row. I'm more worried, if anything, about the pitching because Philadelphia, as we know, has a pretty potent lineup, and it's hard for me to think about the postseason without thinking about Philadelphia. So you kind of got to plan to get past them first. As, much, as painful as that is for me to say, you never want to focus on a team specifically in the postseason. With, with all the history recently between the Braves and the Phillies and the Phillies coming out on top the past two seasons, I think that's what the Braves are looking to do, not just win the division, but also get past the Phillies, get back to that World Series and win another one with a much better team than they won it with three years ago in 2021. Ronald Acuna Jr. 
coming off a historic season, would like to see some postseason success as he was injured for that 2021 run. But obviously very excited as a Braves fan. Obviously love the offseason move in picking up Chris Sale. Also Jared Kelenic I'm really excited for to play left field every day for us. I think he's a guy that's kind of been written off by the Mariners after his tough start, but he's shown flashes, in my opinion, of true potential. And so I'm excited to see what this Braves team can do in 2024. Yeah, I am as well. And Mets fans might be on depression watch even more than usual if Jared Kelnick turns it around with the Braves. So <laughs> that's right. That's, that's, right. that's one to watch for sure. Then some other big offseason moves. You have Corbin Burns, now a Baltimore Oriole. That pitching staff looks better and better every year. A great rebuild that Baltimore has done over the last couple of years. Shoto Imanaga coming over from Japan to pitch for the Cubs, a guy that Cubs are very high on, I know, has looked great in bullpens. Yoshinobu Yamamoto for the Dodgers, I think, is the pitching prospect I'm most excited about for this season, was dominant in Japan. And I don't know if you've seen videos of him throwing bullpens, but he looks absolutely silky smooth. And yeah. I cannot wait to see how he does over a full season. Then you have Young-Ho Lee for playing outfield for the Giants. They get a good contact bat into that lineup, something that they need a little bit more of, and good defense in the outfield as well for the Giants. And all these offseason moves, it's... And then Bellinger going back to the Cubs as well. If baseball is finally back, we're really getting into the season, and there is unfortunately one thing with baseball that has been quite sad as we've seen spring training start up yeah and that's that's been those fanatics uniforms absolutely being ruined the MLB uniforms excuse me by fanatics and honestly just a travesty because I feel like of the three major sports the NFL and Major League Baseball in my opinion were always pretty superior over the NBA uniform wise just in terms of crispness cleanness and just, I don't know, I've always I've always loved MLB uniforms, and I just cannot say that anymore just based on the, the uniforms that I've seen so far worn by the players in spring training have just been atrocious. Yeah, the Fanatics jerseys don't look good at all. The nameplates on the back, just the weird curve that they've added, it doesn't look good at all. As, as a Reds fan, I'm curious to see if Christian Encarnacion Strand's name is a circle on the back of the jersey, the way that <laughs> that thing is set up, but... Then the cheapness of the patches on the side, it bring back the embroidery and the stitching because this new scanned on stuff looks terrible. And then the prices have gone up too, which is absolutely ridiculous. It's baffling, honestly. <laughs> MLB jerseys are already expensive enough. They're not affordable for a lot of people out there, and you're going to make them more expensive and then absolutely kill the quality on it. It's just inexcusable. And then... It didn't get any better on the lower half, as you're going to be much more up close and personal this season with your favorite MLB players than you ever wanted to be, it looks like. Yeah, definitely don't want to be staring below the belt at these MLB players unless you're prepared to see some things that might not be suitable for all audiences, but apparently Fanatics doesn't care about that. They're saying that Major League Baseball is saying that the same fabric and the same thickness is being used on the pants no, this season. it can't I'm, be i refuse I'm to just, believe that i'm just not buying that as you can see the, the players tucked in jerseys through the pants along with several other things that we're not going to discuss directly here on air but blue jays fans better be uh with yeah, all the players out. the blue jays have this season they need they need to be careful there needs to be some content warnings on blue jays games on the mlb app this year yeah, and how clutch was it for each of us to get jerseys of our favorite players before the Fanatics know, team just came last in year, and destroyed them? <laughs> I just got my Ellie jersey last year, which was just in the nick of time, because these new jerseys are horrific. Um, do you have any idea, in terms of the contracts with Fanatics, like how long this is going to be the case? Is there a way for them to go back and fix these things, or are we just kind of stuck with this for the next few seasons? Because... I don't know. I just I don't think it's a big enough deal to drive fans away from the game of baseball that love baseball, but I think it's enough of a big deal to maybe take away some of the casual fans that just kind of tuned in for the big players, the big names that just wear the jerseys of the star players like Shohei Otani, Ronald Acuña, Mookie Betts, 
all these big time players, like the jerseys just don't have their sparkle anymore. Yeah, and the unfortunate news is that this Fanatics jersey contract runs through the 2029 season, which is that's that's about five years too long, in my opinion. Man, and that's terrible. There's there's not really anything that MLB can do without losing a lot of money, which is not something that Manfred is going to do. No. But with Manfred set to step down in 2029 as well, maybe those two things will coincide and leave at the same time. I know that would be a massive win for baseball all around. But as we get closer and closer to the start of the season, we're going to go ahead and throw out our World Series matchup and winner predictions. So who do you have? Yeah, so call me biased, that's fine, but the best team in baseball over the past three years in the regular season and the postseason combined, well, I guess I guess I can't throw in postseason. I'll, I'll give you regular season, not yeah, reg- postseason. Reg- I, let's say we'll combine the 2022 and 2023 regular season and the 2021 postseason. If you combine only those three <laughs> factors, the best team in baseball has been the Atlanta Braves. It has not been particularly close. The Braves have been dominant in the NL East, winning 100-plus games last season, unfortunately losing to Philadelphia once again in the first round. In my opinion, there's still not a more stacked roster top to bottom than the Atlanta Braves, both in the lineup and the pitching staff. I think the Braves are going to finally get back over the hump this season, and I think they're going to win in the World Series over the Baltimore Orioles, who have been really impressed by in their pretty quick rebuild they've made a lot of nice moves have a lot of young pieces excited to see Jackson Holiday maybe get thrown into the fold for the Orioles this season a really good hitting prospect and so yeah that's that's gonna be my pick this season Atlanta Braves over Baltimore Orioles I'll say in six games nice I have a pretty interesting World Series prediction as I'm going a bit off the wall. It is the Washington Nationals and the Oakland. A- I'm just kidding. Um, I have the I have the Baltimore Orioles as well. I had them making the ALCS before the addition of Corbin Burns and with the addition of Corbin Burns. I think this is a World Series team. I have them beating the Braves, so just the exact opposite of yours. And I think it does go seven. I think the Orioles wrap up the series at home in Game 7, so I'm super excited to watch baseball this year. I know you are as well, and Baltimore fans, maybe some lasting postseason success for the first time in a while. Yeah, and both of, both of us really just love baseball in general, kind of hoping that later on this summer we can maybe take a trip out and see a few ballparks, check a few off our list. That'd be pretty exciting. Maybe get Maybe get a podcast episode done on the road. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, that would be fun. Then finally over into college baseball as it is officially up and going. Auburn, being an Auburn student, uh, looks pretty good so far. The lineup is what we thought it would be. The lineup is very good. Pitching is still a bit shaky, but the bullpen looks to be a lot more solid than last year where they were just implode for no reason, which is a lot of the reason why Auburn was not able to advance out of its own regional. So hopefully that problem is fixed for this year. I know you being in Clemson, so Clemson looks good this year too. So do you think they're going to make it all the way? And if not, who do you have in the College World Series? Yeah, so I do think Clemson's going to make it to Omaha. I don't think they're going to take that next step and win it all or even be in the finals this season. I think the goal for Eric Bakich and his staff and his team in year two here at Clemson is pretty is pretty clearly to get to Omaha. Anything uh, beyond that would just be icing on the cake. Anything falling short of that would be a failure of a season, as sad as that is to say. But Clemson finishing strong last season, obviously winning, losing in heartbreaking fashion against Tennessee at home here in the Clemson Regional. And I just think especially if Clemson can get some of their pitching issues worked out, they will find themselves in Omaha this season. And in terms of my national champion prediction, I'm going to go with Wake Forest over Arkansas. I really like what Wake Forest has been doing over the past few seasons. They have a really good pitching staff, easily the best in the ACC. They've started a little bit slow this season. And then Arkansas, I think, has the deepest pitching staff in the SEC. And so that's that's kind of why here initially I'm going to go with Wake Forest over Arkansas. 
Well, once again, your series winner is my series loser, as I have <laughs> Wake Forest losing in the College World Series to the Florida Gators, another team that is pretty near and dear to my heart. Grew up a massive Florida fan before going to college at Auburn, and I think this all starts and ends with Jack Caglione. He is college baseball's Shohei Otani. He is a very, very good pitcher, throws absolute gas, and then also led the country in home runs last year. I would expect that to continue. This Florida lineup has just threat after threat after threat after threat. There's never a safe spot in this lineup. And so I think you go to teams like Arkansas and you see their pitching staff. College baseball, a lot of times, an elite lineup will be able to overcome elite pitching. It's just a more high-scoring game than the professional game. So because of that, I think Florida's going to go very far this year. I think Caglione is going to take them all the way this year, and I think they win the College World Series over Wake Forest. Yeah, I like that pick a lot as well. It'd definitely be must-see TV. I'd say even absolute cinema if we <laughs> get to see uh, a two-way player like Jack Caglione in the College World Series finals. It's always really impressive, in my opinion, to see a player able to pitch and hit at those high levels. One of the most impressive sp- feats in sports, in my opinion. So that would be very For sure. Exciting. Well, do you have anything else for baseball, or is that it? I think that's pretty much that pretty much covers baseball for right now. We'll obviously ramp up our coverage of football and baseball a little bit more as draft season for football and as the regular season for baseball get a little bit closer. Yep. Well, that is it for episode one of SM Sports Radio. Like we said off the bat, we're super excited to finally be able to bring this to you guys and we hope you enjoy it, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Yeah, thank you so much, guys, for tuning in. Uh, hopefully you can come along this journey with us from the start. We hope to get better and better each episode, and thanks for tuning in.